psalms, six different types of psalms to examine what it is that the psalms have to say to us. So you've chosen a really good time to be here right at the start of a brand new sermon series. So I'm glad you've chosen to worship with us today. Now, that being said, really quick, before I get started in today's text, I do want to say something, address something about last week. And last week, at the beginning of the service, we told everyone that when the service was over, we were going to have two baptisms, that Michael and Kelly Corrigan were going to get baptized, and that people were welcome to stay and be a part of that if they wanted to, or they could leave if they had other things to do. We understood. Now, we all went back to change, Michael and Kelly and I, because we didn't want to, you know, go in the water with dress clothes. And so we go back to change. And as we're standing here on the stairs, right behind these guitars, I remember thinking, okay, when I look out, there's probably going to be 10 or 15 people here. And they're probably going to be Michael and Kelly's family and pretty much nobody else. And the reason I thought that is because I've been at previous churches on staff and as a member and as a volunteer, where whenever you had a baptism after the service, if people had the option to leave, they were gone. They were gone because they were thinking, A, I have better things to do than sit around for an extra 20 minutes at church. Or B, I don't really know these people, so why do I care if they're getting baptized? Or C, you know, this could really risk my decent wait time at the restaurant. So I really need to get going. That's a risk I'm just not willing to take. So at previous churches, 80% of the people who were there for the service would be gone by the time of the baptism. So I stepped out, and I was thinking 10 or 15 people would be here, and nearly every single person stayed. And I, I just got to be honest with you, I was shocked by it, and it was a huge encouragement to me, and I'm sure it was an encouragement to Michael and Kelly as well, because what that tells me is that you all want to support people like Michael and Kelly, who are taking that next step as followers of Christ here in this Prairie View family. And it also tells me that you understand the importance and the significance of the ministry that we are doing here, here. And I just want to thank you for that, because that means the world to me. I'm sure it meant the world to Michael and Kelly as well. And I just want to thank you for that. I think that's a great sign of where our church is. So thank you for that. So today, starting out Psalm 1, we're going to be spending six weeks here looking at six different types of psalms. But before we do that, I kind of want to give you some background information on the book of Psalms. That way, in the coming weeks, you'll have a better idea of what exactly it is that you're working with as we read these psalms. The psalms are traditionally understood to be a collection of hymns and prayers. They're mostly hymns and prayers that were collected, and they span over, some people guess, estimate, a thousand years. A thousand years time span from the time the earliest psalm is written to the time the latest psalm is written. That's quite a bit of time, and what you have there is you have a very diverse group of authors. You have a very diverse group of circumstances that people find themselves in as they write psalms. Very diverse things they're addressing as they write these psalms. And after these psalms were collected, they were used for both individual worship and corporate worship. So people would read these psalms, they would pray these psalms, they would sing these hymns in their own personal private times with God, or when they got together as an entire community, they would use the psalms as their hymn book. Some people refer to the psalms as the early church's hymn book because it was used so much in worship. And throughout this entire series and leading up to this series, I have kind of affectionately referred to this series as Letters to the Editor. 
And the reason I call it letters to the editor is because when you read a newspaper, there's a newspaper editor, and he usually is the person who decides which stories go where and which stories get written and maybe makes changes to stories before they get published. And sometimes people write in to the editor, and they write in sometimes positive things. They say, hey, great job putting that story in there. That really needed to get out there. You reported that extremely accurately. Thank you for doing that. But then there's other times where the letters to the editor are not quite so positive. They can be negative. They can say that you got it wrong, that you didn't need to publish that story, that you missed the facts. And so people write in to the editor, basically grading him on the job they think he is doing. That is not a job I would like to have because every week there is a section for people to write in and tell you how you're doing, which is not what I want to know. But letters to the editor are sometimes positive, sometimes negative. And the reason I call this series Letters to the Editor is because psalms can kind of be viewed as letters. And God is the editor. The psalms are people pouring out their hearts to God, expressing their joy, their fear, their regret, their disappointment even, and their doubt to God, pouring out their hearts to him, no holds barred, kids glove off, They're just calling it like it is and being honest with God. And that's what the Psalms are about. And because of that, the Psalms are definitely not what you would call theological or doctrinal treatises. That is definitely not what they are. They are not firm, uh, just, you know, formulaic statements of faith. They are people pouring out their hearts to God. But that being said, you can still learn theology from the Psalms. You can still learn doctrine from the Psalms. You can learn a whole lot about God from the Psalms. But really, more than that, you can maybe learn a whole lot about us. John Calvin referred to the Psalms as an anatomy of the soul. An anatomy of the soul because he said that every single human emotion can be seen in the Psalms. An anatomy of the soul. I like the way he put that. There's 150 of them altogether. 73 of them are associated with David in some way. Either they're written for David, or by David, or about David. Almost half of them concern David. One of them is traditionally understood to be written by Moses. That would be the oldest psalm. And then one, or two actually, are understood to be written by Solomon, one of the wisest men who ever lived, which we'll address that here in a few minutes. So there's a bunch of different authors of the psalms that make this book unique. And if you're one of those people who thinks, and I don't know if anybody of you are here, but some people like to think, you know what, why do we read the Old Testament? Jesus is in the New Testament. Why can't we just stick with the New Testament? Well, my response to you then would be that Psalms are quoted in the New Testament more than any other Old Testament book. The writers of New Testament scripture consistently went back to Psalms over and over and over and over as they wrote. And the Psalms played a huge role in many of the things that we find, not just in its own book, but in the New Testament too. And Athanasius, the early church father, summed it up really well when he said this about the Psalms. I love the way he puts this. The rest of Scripture speaks to us. The Psalms speak for us. I love the way he words that. The rest of Scripture speaks to us. The Psalms speak for us. So that's where we're going to be over the next six weeks. That gives you some background information, gives you something to work with as we start out today in Psalm 1. So if you have a Bible with you, open up with me to Psalm chapter 1. And if you're one of those people who likes to follow along in a physical Bible, any time over this series when I say open up to the book of Psalms, 
Open up your Bible halfway, and there's a really good chance that you will land in the Psalms. Maybe a little bit ahead of the Psalms, but turn back a few pages. Psalms is about halfway through your Bible, and we're going to be in Psalm 1. So starting in verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So the psalmist starts looking at this man, examining this man, this blessed man. And he gives a few characteristics of who this blessed man is. What makes this man so blessed? And there's a few things listed, things that he doesn't do, and there's things that he does do. And the things that he does not do are a progression. If you look at the language in Psalm 1, there is a progression of action. You go from walking to standing to sitting. And the three are very different, and there are very important reasons why the psalmist would make them different. There's this progression because walking, you're just taking a stroll. You're just checking things out. You're just seeing how things look. You're not committed. You're just passing through. You're just seeing what it's all about. Okay? Well, what about standing? Standing, you're a little bit more committed than if you're just passing through. You're saying that you're going to spend a little bit of time there. Your feet are planted. And you can move if you want to, but you're still a little bit more committed than you were before to that path that you're on if you're standing on it. And then finally... They're sitting. Sitting is the ultimate showing of commitment to that path. If you're sitting on that path, that implies that you have no intention of moving anytime soon. If you're going to move, you're going to have to put forth some effort to get up and move. If you want to change direction, it's going to take some effort on your part to change direction. Sitting is the ultimate form of commitment because you're saying that you have no intention of going anywhere else. This is where you want to stay. This is where you plan to be. That's the idea of sitting. And then there's also a progression of the groups of people the psalmist writes about. The wicked, the sinners, and the scoffers. Now in the Old Testament, the word wicked would have been a generic term, usually referred to the people who are opposed to God. People who are opposed to God. People who don't like God. That's what that term usually referred to. The term sinners usually referred to people who not only were opposed to God, but they blatantly choose to disobey God over and over and over. They refuse to obey him. That's what the term sinners would have been used for. And then there's the term scoffers. The scoffers are the worst of the three. Because scoffers are known as people not just opposed to God, not just people who want to disobey God, but the scoffers are known as people who won't even listen to God. They're not just opposed to him. They don't want to just disobey him. They don't even want to hear what it is he has to say. They have no time to listen to God in any way, shape, form, or fashion. So there's a progression of walking, standing, and sitting with the wicked, the sinners, and the scoffers. That's what this psalmist is telling the blessed man not to do. And that's what the blessed man refuses to do. He refuses to plant himself in the path of these people, refuses to be a part of the life they live, of the actions they do, of the things that they set their hearts on. That's the idea the psalmist is getting across. That's what he doesn't do. So what does he do? Verse 2, 
His delight is in the law of the Lord, and he meditates on it day and night. This blessed man is a man who is 100% committed to God. He loves God. He reveres God. He respects God. In fact, he even fears God. And that brings us to our topic of wisdom. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This psalm, Psalm 1, is traditionally labeled as a psalm of wisdom because blessed is the man who seeks wisdom. Now, if you've been around for long, if you have much life experience at all, you probably know that there is a big difference between wisdom and knowledge. Wisdom and knowledge are not the same thing. Clearly, Mardana understands that, if nobody else does. Wisdom and knowledge are not the same thing. There's a huge difference between the two. And if you're anything like me or like Mardana, you probably know people who have a ton of knowledge, have a ton of knowledge, ton of degrees, ton of credentials, tons of education, tons of impressive intellect, and yet they completely lack wisdom. Time and time and time again, they make poor choice after poor choice after poor choice. And you sometimes wonder, how can someone that smart be that dumb? It doesn't make any sense. But the reason is because they lack wisdom. Knowledge and wisdom is not the same thing. There's a huge difference. And on the other side of the coin, you probably know people who have tons of wisdom, and they may not have a ton of education, knowledge, intellect, credentials, degrees, but they have wisdom. There was an elder at the church I came from in Batesville who was a farmer, blue-collar farmer, didn't have a ton of education, wasn't the intellectual type, but he was the wisest man I've ever met in my life. And he was the most godly man I've ever met in my life. And whenever you saw him, you could just see the wisdom just coming from him. It was right there. It was incredible. Wisdom and knowledge are not the same thing. And here's the thing. Everyone in this time and everyone now, we all say that we want wisdom. Everyone likes the idea of wisdom. Well, we all have different ideas of what wisdom is. In Scripture, the idea of wisdom, godly wisdom, is making godly choices. That's the main focus, making godly choices. Now, there were other people who lived in the same time in the Middle East who they liked wisdom too. But their idea of wisdom was not making godly choices. Their idea of wisdom was making choices that improve your life. That was the main point. Making choices that make your life easier. Choices that make your life better. And that is not the image of wisdom we see in Scripture. The image of wisdom we see in Scripture is making godly choices, even if that doesn't improve your life right now. Even if there's no benefit from it right now. Even if it doesn't make your life any easier right now. Godly wisdom is making godly choices regardless of the consequences short-term, looking ahead instead to the consequences in the long-term, and the reward that followers of Christ look forward to. This man fears the Lord, and that's the beginning of wisdom. And before I move on to verses 3 and 4, I want to make one thing really, really clear from verses 1 and 2. Wisdom is not isolating yourself from sinners. Some people would read Psalm 1 
and say, you know what? I just need to refuse to have anything to do with these people ever under any circumstances. And that is not wisdom. If wisdom was isolating yourself from sinners, then Jesus was not very wise. And I think Jesus was a pretty wise guy. I'll put my bet with him. Wisdom is not isolating yourself from sinners. It's isolating yourself from the actions. You can reach out to a bank robber without offering to drive the getaway car. That's the idea. It's associating with these people, being a light to these people, but refusing to take the same path that they take. That's the main idea. This is not refusing to be in the presence of of people who don't know God or people who don't know Christ. That is not the point at all. And I just wanted to make that really, really, really clear. So, moving on to verse 3. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. So this blessed man, he's like a tree planted by streams of water. And that imagery would have made a lot of sense to the people reading this psalm in its original context because the trees in the Middle East that bear fruit that people want to eat, often their season to bear fruit is also the driest season of the year. And so if you want a tree that's going to bear fruit, you can't plant your tree in the middle of the desert and trust in the rainfall. The tree has to be near a stream, a lake, a river, some kind of body of water. That's the only way it's going to get the nourishment that it needs during those dry times. It's the only way it's going to bear fruit when it doesn't rain for days or weeks or months. He's like a tree planted by streams of water. And in all that he does, he prospers. So what are the streams of water for wisdom? What are the streams of water that we need to plant ourselves next to if we're striving for godly wisdom? I think there's three, three important streams. And the first one, as we saw in verse 2, is the Word, Scripture. If you've been in church, you've heard it before, and you'll hear it again. And there's a reason for that, because it's right. You need to be in Scripture as much as possible as a follower of Christ. You need to be diving in head first to what Scripture has to say to you. You need to be milking it for everything you can get out of it. Because it is a source of life. It is a source of abundance. It is a source of nourishment if you will just give it a chance and plant yourself next to it. The second stream I think is important is the Holy Spirit. You have the Spirit if you are a follower of Christ living inside of you right now. And that spirit is a source of encouragement, a source of accountability, a source of conviction when we need it. And that spirit is continually changing and molding and transforming our hearts if you will just tap into it. It's right there. Don't quench it. Don't refuse to be a part of it. You have an incredible stream of life and abundance in you right now if you will just plant yourself next to it and take advantage of it. And then finally, the third stream that can help you bear fruit is community. Be around people who are striving for that same godly righteousness that you are. Be around people who want the same things that you want. You know, they sometimes say that if you want to be a good basketball player, play basketball with people who are better than you. And they might kill you, 
when you play with them. They might be better than you, but you will get better. If you want to be good at something, hang out with people who are good at it. The same idea applies here. If you're looking for godly wisdom, hang out with people who are also looking for godly wisdom. They can be an encouragement, a source of accountability for you. It's a stream of life that we are called to take advantage of. And then verse 4, the wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. So what's the image there? If the wise person, the blessed man, is like a tree that bears fruit, then the wicked are like chaff. Now back then, a farmer, when he brought in grain, after the grain was threshed, as Rick mentioned in his community meditation, he would take a big pile of grain and he would put it on the ground and he had some kind of pitchfork type thing and he would stick the pitchfork in this pile of grain and throw it up in the air. And when he threw it up in the air, the wind would catch the chaff, the light, useless, pointless chaff, and it would blow away, blow over there. But then the good parts of the grain, the parts of the grain that are useful and productive that you want to keep, they were heavy enough to where they would fall straight down. So you'd have the good parts falling straight down and the useless parts being blown away. The idea is that the wicked are like chaff. They're cast away from the farmer's presence. And the grain, those are the people who understand godly wisdom. Those are the people who the Holy Spirit is transforming. Those are the people who have that relationship with God. They remain in the farmer's presence. They are used by the farmer. The chaff, it blows away. It's useless. It has no point. The farmer can't do anything with it. That's the idea. Don't be like the chaff. Be a tree that bears fruit. Plant yourself next to streams of water. And in all that you do, as you strive for that wisdom, you'll prosper. Finally, verses 5 and 6 the difficult verses of the psalm. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. You remember what we said earlier about how many people around the Israelites at this time, around God's people, they viewed wisdom as something you get to make your life better to improve your life now, to have your best life now, to have the easiest life you can possibly imagine. That's the idea. But here's the thing. That wisdom may make your life better right now. It may make your life easier right now. But in the long term, it doesn't hold up. God knows the difference between the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. The way of the wise in his eyes, and the way of the wise in the world's eyes. There's a difference. And like that farmer throwing up that grain, there is a separation. There is a separation of the two. And the chaff are cast away from the father's presence, from the farmer's presence. And the grain, they stay in the farmer's presence. That's the idea. That is wisdom, godly wisdom, making godly choices. So how do we get this wisdom? Do we just try and make better decisions on our own? 
Do we try and improve ourselves? Do we read some self-help books on how to make better decisions and how to take better care of ourselves and sharpen our brains and sharpen our decision-making? Is it really that easy? No, it's not. And if you're a good Christian, which I'm sure most of you are, you may be hearing this sermon and you may think, now wait a minute, where's Jesus in this? Where's Jesus in all of this? We've talked about wisdom, we've talked about the fear of the Lord, we've talked about planting yourself next to streams of water, but what about Jesus? That's kind of important to mention in a sermon, right? Well, I think it is. And we see that Jesus is a huge part of this idea of wisdom. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, Paul writes, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. And look at verse 3. In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Wisdom starts with the fear of the Lord, but wisdom is completed in Christ. Wisdom finds its completion, not just in a fear of the Lord, but in a fear of the Lord combined with a knowledge of who Christ is. If there's one piece of wisdom you have in this life and nothing else, if you don't know anything else, know Christ. That's the point. That's where all the wisdom that really matters anyway finds its completion in Christ himself. And what's ironic about that is that the cross was not a beacon of wisdom in that time, in that day and age. People did not think it was very wise to follow a guy who got himself killed on a Roman cross. That wouldn't exactly meet the criteria of traditional wisdom. And yet, the wisdom of God is different than the wisdom of the world. And the wisdom of God is seen in a slaughtered lamb hanging on a cross For you and for me, taking the punishment we deserve upon himself, shedding his blood and breaking his body. That's where wisdom is ultimately seen. And if there's one piece of wisdom that you ever gain, have it be that. That's the one piece of wisdom that really matters anyway. So how do you get it? Wisdom is found in Christ. Wisdom is completed in Christ. But how do you get this wisdom? What do you need to do to get it? You know, like we said, you can take some tests, you can read some books, you can try to sharpen your brain, sharpen your decision making, but ultimately that doesn't work. Isaiah chapter 5 verse 21 says, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. You can strive for that wisdom all you want. And you may think at some points that, you know what, I'm starting to get this. I'm pretty wise. I have a pretty good idea of what this wisdom is, and I did it all on my own. I'm a self-made man. I found it. I didn't have to get God to help me. I didn't need any help finding it. But guess what? That wisdom, it won't last. It will be like chaff. It will blow away in the wind. And woe to the person who by their own efforts alone thinks they get wisdom. Woe to that person who is wise in their own eyes. So if you can't do it on your own, if it's not just something you can develop through your own skill or hard work or abilities, 
then how do you get it? Well, James in chapter 1, verses 5 and 6 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. Driven and tossed by the wind. Just like that chaff. Tossed by the wind. If you're seeking godly wisdom, you can't just get it on your own. You can't just work hard. You can't just make enough good decisions to somehow develop this godly wisdom all on your own, apart from any help from God. If you're seeking godly wisdom, ask God for it. Seek God for it. And he will give it to you. He will give you his spirit that will transform your heart, will transform your mind. The wisdom that you can't get on your own can be found if you ask God. If you throw yourself at his feet. If you humbly submit yourself and you're willing to admit that you don't have wisdom. And that the wisdom that you can develop on your own doesn't last anyway. And the wisdom that you can develop on your own may last a little while. But it's like chaff in the wind. And eventually, it'll be blown away. Wisdom is made complete in Christ. Ask God for it. Understand who Christ is. And you'll find wisdom. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time. And God, we all are so much in need of wisdom, of your wisdom that we can't gain on our own. And God, thank you for the fact that you so graciously and so abundantly give us your spirit to transform our hearts, to renew our minds, to give us the wisdom that we don't deserve. God, I pray that you will help those of us who are followers of Christ. I pray that you will help us to make godly decisions. Even when it doesn't make things easier, even when the reward isn't in the short term, I pray that we will make decisions that please you, that we will plant ourselves next to streams of water. Thank you for your son. Thank you for the fact that we can ask you for wisdom and you will give it to us. Thank you for your spirit. We lift this day up to you. We lift this time up to you. We give you the glory for everything that we do. We love you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you have any questions about our church, if you have a prayer request that you would like someone to pray with you about, if you are someone who's looking for wisdom, if you're someone who doesn't know Christ, and because of that you don't know what wisdom truly is, and you want to know what it is, Talk to one of our elders. They'll be standing at the side of the room at the end of the service. They'd love to hear from you.